You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, welcome to Beyond the Ordinary. We are here today with Dr. Matt McGurk one of my very, very good friends, as well as a business partner and general partner at Mammoth Health and Tech Fund One, but more importantly, just a great family guy and world-renowned neurosurgeon. And you know, Matt, I I think it's funny, a lot of times we're out talking to somebody, we're like, well, it's not brain surgery. Well, actually you do brain (laughs) surgery. So, uh, you know, Matt, I wanna start with that. Like, how did you actually decide? What was that moment in your life when you decided like, you know what? People always say, like, it's not brain surgery. You know, I'm going to do brain surgery. How did that happen? Well, look, I I knew I wanted to be a doctor or go into medicine when I was about four years old. I had no idea what that meant and and what I wanted to do in it. Very obvious, almost month one of medical school. There's a, a you turn left for a medical specialty and right for a surgical specialty and the fast paced feeling and, and the high adrenaline and high stakes world of surgery turned me on immediately. It wasn't until halfway through med school when I started studying the nervous system, the central nervous system, that I was just blown away by the brain and the nervous system. And, it, and I said, look, I, if I want to be a surgeon and my favorite organ in the world that I was just fascinated with what was the brain and the central nervous system, what a perfect field to bring those two together. And that's how I landed on neurosurgery. What was it that fascinated you so much about the brain? Gosh, I remember my first neurology rotation at Duke Medical School when you could have small areas in the brain that would have a stroke. And then I could sit down with a patient and see a function that was lost, whether it was the ability to understand words or express words or move their hand or have balance and how how reproducible you could localize where in the brain, the spinal cord, the brain stem, that injury occurred. And, and I just found that fascinating. And then as I started taking time to do an extra year or two of research, understanding neuroplasticity, right? How the brain rewires, reorganizes to learn, to store memories. And we learned, we're learning something new every year. And that's one thing that I've always been drawn to, a mountain where the peak is still just out of reach because you're always climbing, always learning. It's a puzzle you never solve. That's the human brain. It's amazing. And it's a privilege to practice a field of medicine so close to it. What a great introduction. So for our listeners out there, a lot of them are founders. They're trying to build health science companies. They're maybe investors trying to make sure they do good work in investment companies. One of the things you're going to hear from Dr. McGirt today is just how he's made that leap from uh, being a practitioner, uh, you know, really a world-renowned surgeon, to also being an entrepreneur. So we'll talk about that today. He's also got just some incredible stories. Uh, this guy is just has a new story every week, I feel like. So uh, I want to push into some of those. And then ultimately, we'll we'll wrap it up and we'll close and give you as listeners, whether you're an investor or a founder, we'll give you some insight from one of the leading minds in medicine and what it is he looks for in an opportunity to make sure that it's got the right stuff. So Matt is uh, intimately involved in our due diligence process at Mammoth Health and Tech Fund One. 
And as a result of that, he's looking at most of the medical deals that come across our plate in some fashion or another. And so we'll wrap things up. Uh, we'll let you know what it is that he's looking for in those opportunities. So before we go there, Matt, uh, I want to go all the way back to med school because I absolutely love your story. So tell us about your time at Duke and uh, some of the neat stuff that's come out of that. Gosh, I'm a huge Blue Devil. Love, love Duke. I was raised by Carolina Tar Heels in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, my dad was a Moorhead scholar. I was a big Tar Heel fan growing up. And I decided to cross the street and go to Duke. So I'm the one black sheep in my family. It makes basketball season super interesting. But I met my wife, uh, my best friend. I married the right woman for me. She's amazing. Laura McGirt, who's a physician as well. And my entire family says the one thing that came out of Duke, the one reason it was worth it was Laura McGirt. So we met at Duke, got married at Duke, did med school there. I got to ask you one question about you and Laura Duke together. Who came in higher in your med school class? Let me tell you, I've been riding Laura's coattails my whole life, man. She was, uh, they give an award at graduation, the highest performing GPA for uh, the man and woman in the class. And she got as a female, the, you know, the highest GPA for a female in the class. But, you know, what really, really reminded me and set the tone for the rest of my my life was uh, I uh, really wanted to train at Johns Hopkins Neurosurgery. It's the birthplace of modern neurosurgery and Harvey Cushing. They only took three young men or women every year out of medical school, and it was uh, the top of that pyramid and, and just full of phenomenal people and minds. And I remember uh, there sitting down for my interview with the, with the chairman of the program, Henry Bren, who's a brilliant man himself and great person, and just said, I got to tell you, Matt, uh, at the end of this interview, so I got to tell you, I just got a phone call from the uh, inter- chairman of internal medicine begging me to consider you so he can have your wife here. So I realized at that moment that uh, I was going to be riding uh, her coattails for some time. Sure enough, I got the gig, the job there, and was in that uh, class of three for seven years then moved on from there. But but that sort of uh, little story about my Duke years and, and my family as we've kind of grown through the medical training program together. Matt, as you came out of training, you really uh, started down that academic path. What was it that initially drew you to academics over, uh, you know, private practice? Yeah, gosh, when I was a medical student, I loved both the creativity and the analytics of research. Now, electronic medical records had just come out when I was a medical student at Duke in the 90s. And this was revolutionary because traditionally, all medical data on on care of a patient was on paper. So to go back and retrospectively learn for it was almost impossible, right? To review 10 charts was a lot of work. To look at the last 300 patients treated with the disease was almost impossible. As soon as EMRs, electronic medical records, came out, there was a way to query. And I was at the forefront of that. And it was intuitive to me that using what we now call big data, you could then at unprecedented levels access data for the care we're, we're, we're delivering. And in healthcare, we're delivering care every day just in standard of care. And we are leaving data just laying around on the floor for what we have just done. Did it work? Did it not work? What were the clues that might have predicted if it was going to work or not work? And I realized just intuitively as an early medical student that, gosh, if I can collect all this off the floor in a meaningful way, put it in a bucket, analyze it, 
you could start doing some very meaningful stuff. And uh, and when I would was done studying for my test or doing my rotation, I was doing more on the side. I was going to the lab. I was learning statistics and uh, and just jumped into it and, and ended up publishing about forty independent peer reviewed articles as a medical student, something that was very unique for someone that young to be doing. And at that moment, it, it became one of my true content expertise. It helped separate me. It helped help me land at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and at Hopkins, I ran with that. And um, it's been one of the true joys of my early career was uh, being able to begin driving innovation while I was also learning the field that I was in. And that was a tremendous, incredibly rewarding in my first years as both a resident and as a junior faculty. In incredible timing that you got to be kind of at the early stages of big data transforming the way that medicine continues to uh, evolve. That's right. And and gosh, because of that, I, I think I had probably reached uh, about 120 peer-reviewed publications by the time I graduated my residency and fellowship and took my first job at Vanderbilt. And because of that, I had actually done more on comparative effectiveness research and big data outcomes, if you will, research as a first-year faculty member when the AANS, uh, American Association of Neurological Surgeons, were aiming to build and launch their first national registry. Paul McCormick, current president of AANS, uh, Tony Asher, secretary and others reached out to me to help build them. So here I was in my first year as an attending in neurosurgery at Vanderbilt University, really the chief engineer for organized neurosurgery's national registry launch, and really got to be the cook in the kitchen and engineer that that platform, which is now in over 250 hospitals worldwide, which is now the joint registry for the American Association of Orthopedic Surgery and Neurosurgery, and the largest uh, collaborative outcomes effort uh, in the world. So, Wow. Timing has is, is really been, I've been blessed to be in the right place at the right time with the right skill set to build some cool things. I love it. I love it. I do want to ask about just some of the craziest stories that have happened to you along the way. Uh, just for our listeners' benefit, uh, I, you know, I get a call one day or I get a text one day from Matt uh, and he said, hey, uh, you might want to watch Grey's Anatomy. Prior to then, I had not been a Grey's Anatomy watcher, but he's like, you might want to watch this episode. He's like, I really can't say much, but you might want to watch this episode. What happened? <laughs> Why did I get that text? <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. The producers of Grey's Anatomy uh, called me. Uh, I had done a really unique and innovative surgical case. They caught some local media attention and then picked up uh, nationally, and the producers wanted to write my case into uh, an episode of their story, and and that was a lot of fun, just seeing that on TV. But the real amazing part of that story was a lovely woman. I won't use her name, but I was in my third week of practice. Okay, so I, I had been out of fellowship residency for three weeks. I was a junior faculty member at Vanderbilt University, and uh, we served really as the tertiary care referral center for five states in the Deep South. So the most difficult, challenging problems would often get shipped in. So I'm on call and it's uh, the middle of the day and my chief residence calls me and says, uh, uh, Dr. McGirt, yeah, you know, you may want to look at these CT these x-rays. What do you want me to do here? She was dropped off from, you know, rural Tennessee. And it was a lovely woman who had had some prior neck surgeries in the past, but her head had literally fallen forward and detached off of her spine 
it was laying on her chest. It was, I don't know how she wasn't paralyzed. We call it a chin on chest deformity. Some would even call it internal decapitation, but it was uh, an incredible case. So we uh, ended up having to admit her, give her nutrition, fight the infection, put her in traction, which is hanging weights from the skull to try to straighten things out. And then ended up doing three, probably three separate seven-hour surgeries on her to rebuild her entire neck from the base of her skull to the top of her chest with titanium in a way that did not injure her arteries, veins, or spinal cord. And it was a lot for someone in their first month, but uh, I was blessed to train with a guy named Ziego Koslin, who might be one of the greatest surgeons to ever live at Hopkins. I knew I had the uh, the training to do it, so it was it was obviously fun to have my nurses, my assistants watch that show, and, and it was a total team effort to get that case done and and to help the patient. But obviously, the the most rewarding part of these stories are the patients and their families. And my patient's doing great, and 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 is just a lovely person. That's incredible! What a story. You know, for our listeners also, uh, you know, we won't go into this story today just for time's sake, but if you want to go Google and check out one of Matt's cases actually ended up as a just tremendous heartfelt story. I, I kid you not, it's kind of a Hallmark movie episode. It ended up on the Today Show and the Ellen Show. Happened to be the same day as Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell were on. So Matt's got that on his resume as well. But uh, definitely go check out that story. Uh, new book just came out from that as well. What's the name of that book, Matt? 2% by Dean Otto. Excellent. So, uh, you know, just an incredible, heartfelt story. I don't want to give it away. Go check out the book. Dean's a wonderful guy as well. So absolutely check out that book. Wow. So, uh, you know, Matt, fast forwarding a little bit, you know, you went from academics and then decided to make the leap over to private practice. What triggered that? And uh, how easy was it to make that leap? Yeah, you know, um, it was a great leap and it was not a difficult leap. I was fortunate enough to leave a great academic center at Vanderbilt University. I love the South. I'm from the South and wanted to stay in the South. It's why I took that job at Vanderbilt. But, you know, I really wanted to move over uh, into uh, and have a little bit more influence and in, say in, in the marketplace of, of healthcare. Usually when you're a physician and employed at a large university, you know, you, you have one job and that's patient care. And I love patient care and that's why I'm a doctor and it's going to be my first and foremost passion in medicine. But you really don't have uh, you're not at the table when you're, you're talking about contracting with payers when you're talking about contracting with industry or development. And so I became an, a local expert, uh, a national expert in health economics and gave many seminars in that and knew that to really be able to, to um, have a voice to change healthcare at a more macro level and a more market specific level, if you will, I would need to, to be in a private setting. And so that's why I made the leap to join the largest neurosurgery group in the United States, CNSA, Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you got to go back home to North Carolina as well. I did. Hometown of Charlotte happens to be the largest neurosurgery group uh, on the planet, owned by its physicians, uh, has a residency program. So I can continue to do research, continue to teach, own our practice, but actually now have a seat at, like for the last eight years 
at the table and engaging in the larger healthcare marketplace discussion. It's incredible. And, you know, I've gotten to know some of your partners at CNSA over the years as well. It just seems like you have just an incredible, incredible group of men and women driving that practice. So it seems like it's been a great fit for you as well. It's been tremendous. We have tremendous surgeons, tremendous entrepreneurial minds, wonderful administrative team. We own a lot of our own equipment uh, that allows us to uh, engage in cost reduction for our patients. We are able to uh, create value-based contracts in a way that's very unique. Uh, it's for, you know, by surgeons with the patient in mind. And we've been able to do some unique things. We've, we're actually, we've been able to do direct to employer contracting with some of the, the country's lar- world's largest employers. We do direct spine and neurocare with Walmart, uh, Lowe's, among other, uh, where these folks will actually, these organizations will fly in patients who need spine surgery, for example, across six, seven states in the Southeast and free to the patient with no copay, we'll get top quality uh, proven care at our facility. And then we'll charge a fixed cost, a guaranteed low fixed cost. And it's because we can guarantee uh, certain outcomes, uh, prevent readmissions. It's called a spine bundle or capitated payment. So we, we're kind of, we feel ahead of, ahead of the curve on new reimbursement models and are way out in front in the U.S. healthcare, applying it to some of the largest employers out there. Yeah, I feel like everybody today is talking about outcomes-based reimbursement, all those things. And and what I love, you guys have kind of gone beyond that. Not kind of, you have. You've gone beyond that to say, uh, wait a minute, why don't we just eliminate about four layers of middlemen and instead go direct to these large employers, take really, really good care of their employees and do it at a fixed cost because we know we can deliver reliable outcomes. I mean, that's what everybody's asking for. You guys are actually already doing it. We are, and it takes good doctors, but it takes big data. It takes the right analytics. You have to go back and know exactly how often your widget breaks and why. Once you understand risk, you can begin to ensure it in a way that's cost reductive to all players in the equation of healthcare cost. So it's been a great joy uh, for me the last eight years to be able to be a physician at point of care, but also in the boardroom um, making these larger policy decisions. Uh, and it's gotten me in front of CMS Medicare. It's gotten me in front of na- local and national Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's helped give me perspective on uh, large payers and purchasers. Uh, I've been in, with the chief medical officers of Lowe's and Walmart. So engaging this new arena has really helped evolve my understanding and how I can contribute to healthcare advancement. And whether you're government or the employee or the employer or just the the typical American that's uh, utilizing their employer health insurance plan to get patient care, you know, we won't tell you exactly how much Matt's practice is able to cut out from the cost in the way they're doing it. That's part of CNSA's special sauce. But I can tell you it is a substantial chunk of cost, enough that it should be turning every head in the country as they're talking about why is our healthcare spending so out of control? Why is our healthcare such a high percentage of our GDP? Matt's practice is really making a massive dent in that uh, and doing it in a way that is best for the patient. That's the part that I absolutely love. So uh, kudos to you and to CNSA for really paving the way. They've just created an incredible model that uh, truly uh, the whole country should be paying attention and coming to you guys asking questions because you're doing it right. 
Well, thanks, Tommy. We do, I will tell you, we have something called accountability reports. And so if you are a large employer or even a third-party administrator purchasing healthcare on half of you know thousands or hundreds of thousands of your beneficiaries, we will provide an annual report with the outcomes of all of the surgical care of those beneficiaries, return to work, quality, patient reported quality of life uh, improvements, uh, pain scores, complication rates. So we call it uber transparency. There's two issues in healthcare purchasing is lack of transparency, right? That's the return on your investment. What actually am I buying? And then huge cost variation, right? One procedure could cost 1.5X across the street as it costs over to the right. We fix the price regardless of the outcome. And then we address the cost denominator in the value equation. And then we prove with ultimate transparency what we deliver on the numerator on the quality side. So we look forward to scaling this uh, nationally. And we, we think the broader musculoskeletal and cardiovascular community hopefully will begin to adopt such transparency. And I love it. When you say you fix the cost of the procedure, regardless of the outcome, what I appreciate is you take responsibility for all outcomes. So if in those rare instances where something doesn't go quite right, it's not like you guys leave the patient by the wayside, right? That's right. Absolutely not. We we get the patient from A to B regardless uh, of the cost. But because every single patient who has an episode of care with us, we track for a year their outcomes, how they do, not from our perspective, from the patient's perspective. Once you have hundreds of thousands of data points in the right analytic engines, we understand how to get better. We understand who's at highest risk. We understand that you're going to have a 1% or 2% readmission or problem rate. You can bake that in safely to a cost, not to make money on your insurance policy premium, but to fairly be able to continue to offer those low low prices. But, but the tech piece, uh, and I know it's off topic today, the technology piece that drives us to do it is substantial. And playing and innovating with a number of health tech, biotech companies on the data side has been uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. So this, uh, for our listeners, what, what you are just hearing now, I hope you're picking this up. This is why I love every time I get a chance to just talk with Dr. McGirt. What he's just talked about is he's really bringing his whole career together into that moment to say it's knowing the data on the front side of it so that you know how to actually structure this uh, relationship with a large employer where you can do direct medicine for their employees but then also having great data on the back end of it so that you have the accountability that you want to drive, utilizing remote patient monitoring and all of those other aspects to tie the data together so that you can actually control cost, control quality, uh, which is absolutely most important so that the patient can have the best outcome possible, but at hopefully a reduced cost for their health insurance, which is what we all kind of are uh, screaming for these days. Yeah, you're absolutely right, right, Tommy. I think one critical component is understanding the full breadth and depth, the spectrum of practical applications for emerging technology in healthcare. That is a critical piece, I think, to venture capital and successful venture capital. And that's what's been so exciting for me as I've begun to work more and more in the venture capital space. Well, that's a great segue, Dr. McGirt. And uh, we're going to wrap up with Matt's kind of transition from just doing uh, the private practice side and, and the big data side into moving more and scratching that entrepreneurial itch 
and moving more into that aspect of venture capital. As I mentioned, he is one of our general partners at Mammoth Health and Tech Fund One. I'm so honored to have him as not just a friend, but also a business partner. But Matt, before we wrap up with that uh, and talk about the venture capital side and, and also, as we promised, what it is that you look for as most important in some of these healthcare investment opportunities, uh, whether it's a founder trying to figure out how to structure their pitch or make sure they validate their idea, or it's for an investor that's saying, how do I make sure I'm uh, you know, buying into the best uh, healthcare opportunities? Before we launch into that, and we're going to move to my favorite segment, which is we are going to ask the question that all of our listeners are wondering. And today that question is, you've mentioned several times that you, know, you kind of rode your wife's coattails, uh, <laughs> including uh, part of getting into Hopkins with them trying to also pursue your wife to come match over there. So a uh, question that I think our listeners would love to know is, did she go to Hopkins uh, for training? And if so, what was her specialty? Yeah, Lark did go to Hopkins, uh, trained there, joined the faculty uh, for a short period and is a dermatologist, currently practices and really focuses on oncology and cancer dermatology. And is considered to be a, uh, an international expert on cutaneous lymphoma. So she's still doing her thing, and she's still funnier than me, more charming and better looking. So I can say that because everyone else does. <laughs> I appreciate it. That makes two of us. You know, Matt, one of the things I've really appreciated about having you on the team at Mammoth is that you bring this really deep research background. You know, you've been in medical research for decades, and you bring that discipline of a Johns Hopkins medical researcher to the way that we think about and look at companies that we're considering. I'd love for you to talk with our audience about what that means in terms of trying to mitigate some of the downside risks that are inherent in being in the venture capital space. Yeah, absolutely, Tommy. You know, wanted to introduce a concept that's fairly well known in the medical research community that might be newer to the investment or venture capital community. You know, 15 years ago, when really the healthcare reform movement took off, we began looking at really healthcare value, right? And the Institute of Medicine realized about 30% of healthcare delivered may not provide any benefit. And that was really eye-opening at that time. And why is that? Well, quite frankly, our systems that are designed to bring healthcare to the U.S. market really are very well suited to define what is safe for patients and what has the ability to have efficacy. And in trial data, that's exactly what it shows is efficacy. But what we have realized is that there's something called the efficacy to effectiveness gap. And what is that? And why is there a gap? Well, efficacy in the medical literature really is in the ideal perfect level one data, which is traditionally a randomized controlled trial, you have perfect equipoise between treatment A and treatment B. Through randomization, the disease subtypes are similar in balance, the patient types and demographics are balanced between the two, and you get equipoise. So any effect on outcome you know has to be attributable to treatment A versus treatment B. But the problem is, is that there's problems with external validity of randomized trials, okay? That is to say, while it eliminates inherent bias, for example, a group A may have more smokers than group B, so it negates the fact that group B might prevent cancer, so other confounders are eliminated. 
but it's an artificial environment, if that makes sense, Tommy. So yes, a drug might be able or does move the needle and let's say reduce heart disease or prevent diabetes complication when it's an astringent environment where everything is controlled. But when it gets to the real world, it fails to translate or it's minimized. So that is real world effectiveness, studying of how healthcare interventions truly perform in the real world. And there's a gap there. So Matt, I think what I just heard you say is in medicine, there was this realization that even though it worked in a laboratory, that did not necessarily mean it was going to work in the real world because sometimes there were variables that were outside of control. That is absolutely right. Because what happens is, here's an example, and it's not just a laboratory, it's actually in human beings in an RCT. So traditionally, the FDA will look at level one data, randomized controlled trials, and they will look and say, this is the gold standard to show that is absolutely safe and that when you match all variables between groups, the drug or treatment truly improves outcome. Okay. And that's great. But the difference is those patients may be very different than the patients treated in the real world. They're motivated. They're signing up for research. They tend to be younger, healthier, less comorbidities. The doctors and nurses in the healthcare environment are more savvy. They're willing to undergo more rigor in order to intervene or, or apply these treatments. And the disease subtypes can be very different. So when you actually look at a drug that might have a 3x effect in a trial, it may have no effect or only a 1.5x when it gets into the real world. And that has tremendous effect on value. Who are the entities that care about value? The federal government, CMS, private payers, and guess who else? Those who fund emerging companies and look for valuation. So it's it, this is a concept that scientifically has not really creeped over as much to the investment space. Let me give you an example, Tommy. Here's an example of compliance where a trial may not be generalizable. There's plenty of heart medicines that have been shown after millions of dollars of raised capital and trial data has been approved with the hope that the trial data will play out and that there's a threefold reduction in mortality with heart disease. Well, it turns out that the trial data only had about 15% of uncontrolled diabetes in it. But in the real world, about 60% of these heart failure patients have uncontrolled diabetes. And it turns out that elevated glucose really interact with the drug mechanism. This was a highly funded and invested drug that showed promising RCT trials. Money poured in. It got FDA approved. But when you look at the fine details, this is a drug that was clearly going to be affected by elevated glucose. And in the real world, that was the case in 50 to 60% of patients. It really was not effective in real world, and it never took off. Those valuations on the investor side were never realized. Let me give you another example, Tommy. And this is with compliance, and we see this all the time. I've seen interventions that require a fair amount of work by the nurse or by the healthcare provider or require a fair amount of work for the patient at home to comply with. In research trials, these are the most motivated patients. They've signed up. Sometimes they're paid to participate. And same on the provider side. In the real world, the incentives might not be there and compliance fails. So while an intervention in the ideal environment in a randomized trial can show effectiveness, the technology that we're bringing forward falls apart when compliance is poor. So these are just examples of the efficacy to effectiveness gap 
when the healthcare system invests millions, it goes through rigorous control, and it just doesn't translate when it gets to the open marketplace. Matt, that makes a lot of sense to me. And certainly we see that over and over and over. What I'm curious about, and I know our listeners will be curious about, especially those who are investors, is how do we take that same type of disciplined approach that you've brought to medical research and translate that into research in portfolio companies that somebody's considering investing in? Great question, Tommy. Let me give you a perfect example. A really exciting technology that had tremendous data and trial data behind it, which was a new way to diagnose, we'll call it uh, disease, to keep it general. And this was something that was just simply you could blow into a machine and it would give you a disease diagnosis. And this is something that would essentially cut the diagnosis, be point of care, down from five days waiting time to almost 20 minutes, game changing, if you will. And it was meant to be used in immunocompromised, critically ill patients. It looked great in trials. It looked great from a safety standpoint. And the scalability and business model around it looked like it was too good to be true. So when you apply how that efficacy and data, right, sure, it's going to get FDA approved, sure, it's safe and the data looks good, what's the gap that when it hits the real world, it may not be effective and the valuation might not be there? You know, this is something that some seasoned physicians who have expertise in that space immediately would recognize. Wait a minute, immunocompromised patients are the most vulnerable and sickest patients. You have to wash your hands incessantly going from room to room. You oftentimes have to wear masks and gowns. A lot of these ventilators uh, rooms are ventilated with negative pressure. So understanding the culture and the dogma of treating these patients right away tells you never would you use a technology that you could pass room to room to room ever take off in the culture of practicing medicine in the United States. The trial data looks great. It's meaningful. It feels an unmet need. But the culture gap is there and providers would never do it. So this is a perfect example of how in order to apply that technology, one would need to use individual components, patient to patient, driving costs fivefold, and the company fails post-market. So these are sort of some of the subtleties of how what we traditionally in the financial sector look at is, are they getting FDA approved? What does the trial data show? Can very often not predict the realized value in the real world. Well, of why it's so important for me to have you and our other clinical physicians as part of our team at Mammoth is for this efficacy valuation gap. There's just so many deals that we've encountered over the years together where I've looked at it from a business standpoint or, or done even deep due diligence and everything looks great on paper. But it comes down to those things that I don't know, nor could I ever know, because I haven't spent decades in an operating room to understand how the real world of medicine actually works, that you and our other clinical experts are able to pick up on so fast. And it's really saved us from some big mistakes. And, you know, one of the things we've built at Mammoth, part of what, you know, what we hope is some of our special sauce is what we call our velocity metric. And it's really two parts. One is looking at how how can we accelerate companies that we invest in? And the other side is how can we de-risk and minimize the level of risk we're taking in the companies we're investing in? What Matt's talking about with the efficacy valuation gap is very much trying to minimize taking risks in those areas where it just doesn't make sense to take risk. Tommy, and I'll tell you, I've learned this 
very, very early, in, early when I was working in my career as a consultant, working with a founder in an emerging company. And this is a great lesson on this gap, efficacy evaluation gap. It was a spine device that meant to turn lumbar disc herniation, which is a non-implant case. It's the number one reason people worldwide have spine surgery. The addressable market is in the multiple of billions per year. This is a, a device that truly prevents recurrent disc herniation, a morbid problem that happens in 5% of all lumbar disc surgery. This company raised over $100 million. It went through eight trials and got FDA approval. It was one of the most highly researched and efficacious new spine devices in the last 20 years. It was released onto the market and it has failed for the last five years, year after year, to get any traction and grow and has really failed all valuation benchmarks. And the reason why is that the disease that it was sent out and proven to prevent recurrent disc herniation was a disease that almost all surgeons felt was not a problem in their hands. They didn't need to prevent it by using this technology. And then the second issue was that the reimbursement pathway in order to get paid, the hospital or facility to get paid for the implant or for the physician to get paid for their services were cumbersome and difficult. Those are the two factors that drove that efficacy valuation gap. So let's end things up today, Matt, with the real question that our listeners are wondering, uh, which I think first is how you made the leap over to venture capital. And then we'll finish things up as promised. And I really want you to give a taste for our listeners, especially for those founders out there or those investors out there on what is it that you think is most important when you're looking at a healthcare opportunity? Well, great question, Tommy. You know, on the why venture capital, I think it's important for everyone listening, whether you're an LP, a GP in venture capital, whether you're later stage or early stage, seed, pre-seed. It became obvious to me uh, as I gained more and more experience outside of the hospital in new peer groups in the, the larger healthcare development space that emerging technologies and everyone involved with bringing those forth play a huge role in the advancement of, of worldwide healthcare. It's an incredibly important part of healthcare. Now, while I spent my early career at point of care delivering neurosurgical care, the more experience I've gotten, the more I've realized is just how critical the engine is that brings these technologies to the practicing doctor are. And it's an incredibly impactful sector to be able to drive healthcare advancements and make a massive difference. So this space that most of our listeners in is, is critically important that flat out helps humanity. That's the why. In a much broader scale, then you can do it one patient at a time. On the how, it's been a great journey for me. I mean, I have uh, found myself working, as I mentioned before, with uh, large payers, employers who buy healthcare. I'm a business owner of the largest neurosurgery group. I work with other privately held provider groups at that level. And then obviously, I have the point of care perspective culturally with nurses, uh, physicians, assistants, mid-level providers. And so I really have gotten the perspective of the full healthcare delivery bubble. 
At the same time, I worked with Fortune 100 companies on design team, trying to design innovative tech on the inside, advising on acquiring emerging technology uh, with the C-suite of these Fortune 100 companies. I've worked uh, as a consultant in all of these roles, by the way, uh, and worked with uh, companies and founders to help build body of evidence to get through FDA approval. I've led closing remarks uh, and helped write documents for FDA approval and gotten to understand and know the culture of emerging technology, their founders, their teams. And, you know, after a decade of more of doing that, I felt that I had developed a perspective and an understanding of how ideas become real solutions, obtain funding with the right team and the right management scheme to get through uh, development, through regulatory hurdles, and then actually make an impact. And uh, I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to continue to work with friends and colleagues that I've worked with for years, such as you uh, and a number of the other uh, members of the GP at Mammoth, and have just loved the last six months of all of the founders, companies, uh, and quite frankly, exiting entities that we talk to and work with. So I look forward to many years ahead in the venture capital space. Well, I love it. Well, Last question is we've promised our listeners here, Dr. McGirt, is really around this idea of what is it that you're looking for? If somebody's got a, a health tech device, obviously on our website, mammoth.vc, there is a place where founder teams can go submit for us to take a look at their stuff. What's the type of stuff that's actually going to pass your screens versus what's not? Yeah. Checkpoint number one. Is the solution or device or process, is it safe and, or not disruptive to care? And does it do what it's supposed to do? Has it been proven and battle tested through with evidence and data to deliver and do what it was designed to do? Number one. Number two, does that solution, biotech or otherwise, fill an unmet need? If it fills an unmet need, rather than just be a preference-based item, it stays within my sphere of potential opportunity. Before I go to number three, it's important for everyone in this space to understand that we are in an unprecedented time in healthcare of value-based purchasing. 80s, 90s, it didn't have to be differentiated. Buying and spending at the payer level or hospital level was not scrutinized. With healthcare costs rising and the drive to reduce spend, if it isn't highly differentiated and fill an unmet need, it does not matter how sound the tech is and how safe the tech is, it will not scale to give you ROI. So those are the first two points, remembering that it needs to fill an unmet need. Three, which everyone on this uh, call knows is the right management team to take it from point A, B, C, D on onward, which is obvious. A blind spot that often comes up is understanding the culture okay, where the rubber hits the road, right? Where this product in its own marketplace will be delivered. Does it make sense in the culture, in the practice patterns of where it will be utilized? And I think having a team, whether it be consultants or an internal operator or, or partner that truly is actively in the field, in that space, practicing medicine or who has for many years, is really, really critical because some things can look great on paper, meet an unmet need, have a great management team, but it's just counterculture to the environment in, in which it may be delivered. 
And the last and final piece is a reimbursement pathway. I can't tell you how many great companies, management teams, and technologies that still fill a potentially fill an unmet need and gap in healthcare, and that might make make sense culturally, have not done their full diligence on uh, securing a reimbursement pathway from CMS or private payers. And when these products get out, they get FDA approved and they're available. If it is too cumbersome for doctors and hospitals to get reimbursed to use them, shy of the cure of cancer, but it is almost impossible for these things to get traction. And that's where the biggest misses are, truly understanding the cultural practices of medicine from having been in the practice of medicine to understand whether it it fits with tailwind or headwind and is is the reimbursement pathways uh, buttoned up by the time it hits the market. And obviously, that's what we have invested a ton of our expertise in at Mammoth uh, for those reasons. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you know, just a, a case specific deal to talk about what Matt's referencing there, you know, we were looking at one and what we saw is ultimately they were trying to take a shortcut through their FDA pathway. And what they didn't realize was what they thought as they were out giving their pitch as a as a founder team. And it was actually probably a really cool way to do what they were trying to do. And it was differentiated. It wasn't preferential. But their FDA pathway was setting them up as a business to only be pigeonholed into a lower reimbursement pathway. And that was one of our biggest, uh, biggest challenges with that company was the way they were going about their FDA approval was leading to something that was going to be a very low reimbursement point. Whereas had they taken the longer approach through the FDA, we really believe they could have been on path to have a much, it was a 10 to 20 fold reimbursement. And so in that particular case, we ended up passing on the deal, not because we thought it was ultimately a bad deal, but just because even though it was differentiated, we didn't see it leading to a great outcome on the reimbursement side. So just for our listeners, if you're new to healthcare investing, one of the one of the most important things to understand is FDA approval is just one step. It is not the end all. You haven't reached the top of the mountain. And in fact, if you climbed up the wrong way, you might have a much more difficult challenge going to the next peak on making this actually a commercially viable product if you can't get the right reimbursements. So Dr. McGurt, thank you so much for being with us today. This is just tremendous for our listeners. I know they're uh, all going to be very, very thankful. So thank you for the time. uh, And thank you all for joining us at Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.